Bowtech Archery prides themselves on offering a bow for everyone. Whether you have a short draw length, a long draw length, pull 70 pounds or 40 pounds, you're a bow hunter or a target archer, they offer a bow that can be customized to fit your body type. On top of that, their deadlock technology allows you to fine-tune your arrow flight. Visit BowTechArchery.com and check out the SR350 and the CP28. Bowtech Archery, refuse to follow. What's going on, everybody? Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I am your host, Mitchell Shirk, and I hope your opening week treated you really, really well. I know mine got started off great. I had uh, I had a rather slow evening on the opening night. You know, it was kind of windy, it was kind of rainy, and kind of miserable, to be honest. I was able to keep out of the elements, fortunately, and uh, at, like right at the last 20 minutes and you know that last 20 minutes is usually dark in the first place but it was extra dark just because of the cloud cover and the raininess I had this really nice buck step out and I looked at him I thought nah it's not quite a shooter and right behind him stepped out a bigger buck and I didn't recognize him right away but then I I, after looking at him in my binoculars I was like wow I, I think that's a shooter and uh, I just kept playing the, the back-and-forth game of looking at him in my binoculars, and I just decided to pass on the shot, not because it wasn't a shooter. I, I think it was. I just I took too long in, in assessing if it was a deer I wanted to shoot, and by the time I made that decision, it was just too dark, and it was it was a farther shot. It would have been like a 40-yard shot, and it just felt like I'd have been pushing my limits uh, given the weather conditions and the lighting. I just didn't want to risk anything and have to start the season off with a bad note. But it was a great encounter. I ended up seeing a handful of buck that night, and uh, it just got me really, really excited. And I'm hoping that everybody else had uh, had something similar going on for them. Uh, good good experiences, and hopefully you got to at least get out, if nothing more. Um, you know, I uh, I think I mentioned it in last week's episode. I got the brilliant idea just because a couple of crazy people on the internet started talking about arrow setups and trying to get your, you know high momentum arrow builds and and I I just got this brilliant idea I was going to try to build a second set of arrows for my backup bow and just see what I could push the limits on and uh, you know with that one of the the components of those high momentum high quality arrow builds is, is the broadhead setup and you know if you if you read the Ashby reports you know structural integrity and high quality steel and they they really like single bevel broadheads. So I decided I was going to get myself a a you know a pack of uh VPA uh single bevel broadheads. I got those at Little Mountain Outfitters Devon hooked me up. And you know, I did all my research. I'm I'm going through like, yep, I got to get this that and the other thing to to sharpen these broadheads. I saw, you know, videos on YouTube, I researched their website. I I've, I've done some sharpening in the past. I thought, yeah, this will be no problem. I literally spent the better part of a day trying to sharpen broadheads and was a complete fail. I don't have a single one that is sharp. And I just was like, "Oh my word." Now I really feel like a millennial. I can't do anything like the old, like 
like you're supposed to years ago and just live in a replacement blade world, I guess. I, you know, there's a part of me that feels bad that I'm, I couldn't sharpen and I'm struggling to figure this sharpening out. So if anybody out there hears this and is really good at sharpening single bevel broadheads and wants to help me, by all means, reach out because what a pain in the neck. But there's a part of me that's like, there's a reason that we have the setups that we have nowadays because it's just a little bit more time friendly, a little bit more efficient for a crazy lifestyle. I don't know. I don't know what's right. I want to, I, I guess I'm just uh, venting because it's driving me crazy and I can't get it. I really thought it was going to be a whole lot easier than what I'm experiencing. So I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong, but uh, hopefully we can figure it out. Another thing that really stood out to me this week, and it kind of just stems back to our episode two weeks ago, in, uh, and it goes along the lines of, of when I said, you know, what makes the best hunter? What does the best hunter look like? Um, I found out that, uh, and, and I'm going to do some name dropping here, so there's a couple of people in the hunting industry that I, I really admire and appreciate what they've done, and... Uh, Two of those people would be Don Higgins and John Eberhart. And uh, if you if you don't know those two individuals, look them up because they're you know absolutely astounding and they're part of the whitetail world. Uh, if you do know them, you know that they're very very different. Don Higgins is a Midwest person who does a lot of private land consulting and builds hunting properties and kills giant bucks. And John Eberhart is somebody who is. Uh, his claim to fame is saddle hunting on knock on door permission or public ground in Michigan and hunting high pressure deer and shooting a bunch of Pope and young whitetails. And he's got a lot of big whitetails on his wall to prove the same thing. And I recently came across a social media post, uh, apparently that there was, there was, I guess, how do you want to put this trash talk? And I, I found out it was on another podcast that, um, John Eberhart was on and he just voiced his opinion about private lands and said some things that I don't think he meant to be hurtful towards Don Higgins, but he just shared his opinion about pressured deer versus unpressured deer and Don Higgins is, is just in a different world. And it came off very controversial. Uh, there was a bunch of social media posts and I'm not trying to gossip about this. I'm just kind of sharing you this information with, with the sheer point you know the reason i'm saying this at the end is because who really cares who's the best deer hunter because at the end of the day like we like we said two weeks ago it doesn't really matter the thing that i take away from those two individuals is number one both of those individuals are extremely driven they are people that regardless of the circumstances they're going to face in in their lives, they're going to figure out a way to come out on top, however that may be. Now, they both came from very different parts of the world and had a slightly different upbringing and experience on the deer they were hunting. But when you put them in the situations that they know, they capitalize. And 
I, I try to do the best job I can on our show and having people come and talk something that can relate to you as a hunter in Pennsylvania. That's very important to me because I do think that there's things that we could listen to um, from somebody like Don Higgins that it might not quite apply it from the Midwest. I'm sure there's things that we could take from somebody like John Eberhardt might not quite apply to our situation where we're at right here. But the point is there are things you take away from somebody who hunts a mature whitetail regardless of where they're at in the country. You just got to learn to take context from it. And that's all I was kind of getting at with that. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Why Why do we have to continually have this conversation? And I, I'm saying this just across the board in, in the hunting industry and social media. Like, why does it matter who's better than who and why you think this is a better situation? At the end of the day, it doesn't. So just kind of wanted to look, go on that little rant because – it was uh, it was fresh. It was relevant to me. Maybe you heard some of that information prior to listening to this episode. But uh, two very very um, highly respected individuals, and just have some differences in opinion. Doesn't really matter. Guess what? <laughs> we're we're all different. Uh, you know, you got people like uh, like me who just can't figure out how to sharpen single bevel broadheads. But anyway, I am still excited to keep going out. Hopefully, I get a couple more opportunities here. And at least to just shoot a doe, I would like to fill a little bit of meat from my freezer here. I'm starting to run out of burger and run out of steaks. So that would be just in time to fill that back up. And, uh, you know, speaking of being an individual, this week's episode, um, I had a conversation with the, the, the man himself for Sportsman Empire, uh, Dan Johnson. Had a bow hunting conversation with him back in August. And one of the things you got to love about Dan is he really, first of all, he is a helper. He wants to do things to help you as an individual, whether you're a listener. And I'll take it from the standpoint of me starting up uh, the Pennsylvania Woodsman on Sportsman's Empire. Gave me a lot of pointers and talked me through a lot of stuff to allow my show to continue to expand. But at the end of the day, he is still somebody who, he doesn't care what anybody else is doing. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's he's an, he's his own person, and he's an individual. And I, I, you got to love it about him because the guy goes out and gets it done. So we just have a general philosophy conversation about bow hunting. We talk about his, his out-of-state trips that he has going on this fall versus what he's doing at home. We talk a little bit about family life. We talk a little bit of bow hunting strategy and assortment of other things. It's a, it's a great conversation with Dan. Um, always love to chat with him and pick his brain. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. Real quick before we get started, Little Mountain Outfitters, guys, if you need to get tuned up, if you need to, uh, if, if you shot all the arrows in your quiver and missed every single deer and lost all your arrows or broke your arrows and you need to uh, to revamp, go check them out, guys. They've got everything you need. Um, you know, they still got uh, shelves stocked with new bows, crossbows, Rambo bikes. They also got your, uh, your uh, tethered and all your other saddle hunting gear that you would want to check out. It's a great place to just hands, get your hands on it and feel it. And uh, like I said, Devon and Terry, wealth of knowledge. You're a great group of guys, great archery shop, and they do have hours that will uh, will work with you even in hunting season. But just keep in mind, they're hunting too, so, uh, so be, be, be conscientious of that too, boys. But anyway, Richland, Pennsylvania... 
Little Mountain Outfitters. Check them out. And with that, let's get to this episode. All right, we're live, and this is going to be a fun one for me today. I got the boss man on the line. I got Mr. Dan Johnson. What's going on, man? Hey, dude. I uh, I don't know about you. You mentioned you had to take care of the kids a little bit more recently because you had uh, your wife is coaching. Yep. Right? Yeah. Okay, so remind me again how old your kids are. I have a two-year-old and a four-month-old. Okay, so you, oh, you're just starting. Yeah, I'm in the you're thick of it, just starting. Can I, can I share a little story with you? Please do, because hopefully okay. it's going to give me some insight, whether it's just comic relief, because it's one of those things where if you don't laugh, you just cry. Right, right. And that's really what parenting is, is you're, you're laughing <laughs> so you don't go crazy, or you're, you internally, you just want to, you want to cry. You want to have a good cry session. Mm-hmm. So, so... Last night we had sleepover at our house. We had uh, a neighbor, brother and sister, came over. They're the exact same age as my daughter and my oldest son. And the last time the son spent the night, he got scared and he wanted to go home. Right. So luckily it was about ten o'clock and I was able to take him home that time. Well, last night my wife's like, "Hey, can he spend the night again too?" And I'm just like, "Uh, well, last time he went home and." He got scared, and so how about just just the girl because she's old enough; it doesn't matter. Well, I feel sorry for my your you know Mac and and uh, this and that and this and that. I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever. Now my wife she goes to bed; she falls asleep early, and once she's out, there's no waking her up. And uh, so so about eleven o'clock, uh, he this kid comes back up into my room, and he's like, hey, I want to go home, and I'm like, why? And, you know, I'm trying to talk him off the ledge. And finally, I'm texting his mom. And he's he's like, he's starting to, you know, whimper a little bit. And he's like this, you know, and, and oh, I want to go home. I'm scared. I'm like, <laughs> what are you scared of? He's like, have you had? And then he starts going into this conversation, no joke, about like, have you noticed anything strange in your house? Have you noticed any anything spooky? Oh, my and and I, I'm like half, half asleep. And finally, I look at the kid and I go, I would hate to be a ghost in this house because they should be afraid of me. And, and so, yeah, and he, that kind of gave him a little bit of comfort. And finally, I, you know, then he comes back in the room. He's like, I want to go home. And I, so I text the mom, obviously it's 1130 at night. She's sleeping. I tried calling her. She's sleeping. And so I told the boy, I'm just like, Hey man, you, you gotta have to tough this one out because I'm not, you know, there's no way we're getting you back home tonight, especially if your parents parents aren't answering the phone. So that's the stuff that you have to look forward to, my friend. I, it just it's it's all uphill from here, right? Isn't that isn't right. that? What, oh no, I know that's backwards. Right. That sounds. That's uh, like the worst motto of life, right? It's like it's all uphill from here. There's mm-hmm. no there's no going back down. You know, listening to a bunch of the stuff you were talking about earlier in the season on some of your episodes, um, you know, I I, kind of got the sense that there was plenty of chaotic things going on, both work-related and family-related, and it seemed like it kind of kept delaying your your big push for getting cameras out and starting that job. How how has that process gone for getting prepared for the season at this point for you? Man, it it's not like it was last year. Uh, I'll be completely honest. It, it's definitely not like it was last year. I ended. I am. I have 
trail cameras up. And I say that with an asterisk because I ended up having, you know, I, I, I lost a property. And so, like I mentioned on one of my episodes that I can't go get my tree stands and my trail cameras off of that property yet because the current landowner is afraid of their, their renter in the house. He has, since they've rented it out, this house to this random guy, that guy has pulled a gun on two people. And so uh, they're trying to sell this property, but the, the renter doesn't want to leave the house. And so now the whole legal system has to get involved and, and the cops have to get involved. And so he, he pulled a, he pulled a gun on two different people. One of them, the actual landowner's son. And, and so it's, it's crazy. So the landowner's like, do me a big favor. Please don't go out there for your own safety. Don't go get your stuff. We're going to get him out. And once you get, once we get him out, then you can, uh, then you can go get your stuff. But the, the problem is I kind of need that stuff because I just picked up a new property and I want to take some of those cameras and some of those stands onto that, onto this new property. So whatever, right. There's nothing I can do about it, but I do have a couple of trail cameras left and I picked up this new property and Sunday I'm heading out there to, uh, which is, I don't know, this is going to probably launch on a Friday. So it would have been the previous Sunday. Uh, I'll be going out and, uh, scouting a new property that I have, uh, that I got access to. Well, thankfully the landowner was, you have good communication with him and that all worked out because that would not be a good experience. I swear, you know, from all the things we do hunting preparation wise, I'm to a point where it's almost like you're doing as much people management crap as you are managing hunting, whether, whether it's public, private, you know, whether you own it or whatever, because, you know, if you're hunting with public you you and i both know the challenges of that in this private land setup you're talking about communicating with landowners dealing with crazy people living in there and then even if you own the land like i've been in those situations where if you own land and like like you just think oh i can do whatever i want and you can but at the same time how many times do you have friends, have family hey man you mind if i come hunt your property or hey what's what's going on and you know, you want to be sharing, you want to be accommodating. And like, yeah. I, I'm a very people oriented person. I love to share experiences and stuff like that, but it, there comes a certain point in time where you got to cut it off. And it's like, no matter how you look at it, it's like a giant people management juggling act. Even when we're just trying to shoot freaking deer, it's crazy. Yeah. That's fact, man. It's uh, I don't know. I, regardless, I'm looking forward to, to the season in a major way this year. Do you get into any situations, uh, this is kind of like a, a personal mind game, like I think back to 2020, I had one of the best seasons of my life, and going into 2021, I was excited, but there was something going on there, like how do I, almost like that mindset of like, how does it get better from here, how do I how do I push it to that next level, and I'm, I'm asking you that question, because you had a heck of a season last year, too, yourself, I mean, you killed two good bucks, and, uh, you know, properties changing and stuff, like, tell me a little, give me a little bit of insight about that mental game going in with that, with that preparation, and knowing that's getting pushed off a little bit by a little bit. Yeah, there, there comes, I always like to say there's a chopping block moment when it comes to time, Right. And so there is there's there's periods of time where I can push off and push off 
and push off. But in my head, I have a chopping block moment where I can push back as much as I need to until I hit that specific moment. And then I have to tell people, sorry, I've pushed this off multiple times for you. This one might burn a little bit. So I'm going to do it now. Mm. And, and so it's a, it's a give and take. You got to try to, I try to schedule them out, but every time I try to schedule, and this is this year, for example, in the trail camera thing, then there, there was a day where it was just like, Hey, I'm doing this. And, uh, I am, I'm going to be as accommodating as possible to everybody else's schedule, but this is something that I have to get done and, uh, and then kind of go from there. And when it comes to the mindset of, for example, losing a property, uh, it, it sucks. And so you're always thinking, do I have enough property to hunt? Do I need to knock on some doors? Am I going to have, you know, am I going to go hunt public and, and, and am I prepared for the upcoming season the way I need to be? And, every time I ask myself those questions, it's no, right? It's always no. Like I could always be shooting more. I could always be checking my gear out more and making sure I'm, I'm prepared for all of that. With that said, that's where you just gotta, it's one of those things where you've heard the saying, hey, dude, you gotta buckle up your bootstraps, pull those bootstraps tight and, and just go and, and get it done. And uh, that's what my life is like recently. Push off, push off, push off. Boom. I, I got to do it. I'm doing it right now. I'm going to go get it done. And I, I find for me a lot of times, like you get into that rut, that daily routine and you push off the stuff you want to do. And then I get overwhelmed thinking about that preparation. And it, it's like, you you just can't teach mental strength and just grinding through it and, and pushing ahead to that next thing. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, so um, new property this year. Um, you got some of your other properties. What are you excited about going into this season? Anything have you fired up or new challenges, new, you know, hunts planned out? What's, what's that look yeah. like? Yeah, I'll tell you what, the, the farm that I've been hunting the longest – Man, I wish I could sit here and tell you uh, I'm jacked about it, but I've had one shooter on trail camera, one picture. That's it. That's it this year. And usually the farms that I hunt hold really good deer in the summer. So I don't know what's going on. With that said, there's always a shift in September, and that shift really kind of tells you what's running around on the farms and then the deer start moving a little bit and the rut the rut there the past handful of years has always been really good for me or the the pre-rut and so uh, i that's i i'm not too worried about it because i know so much will change in the next two months right and so i don't get worried about the iowa farm anymore because i know i have enough acreage there to bounce around try to find a good deer try to find that four-year-old that i'm looking for and and put the pieces of the puzzle together and hopefully, uh, and hopefully get a crack at them. Now, as far as the rest of the the season, man, it's, it's really kind of an open book. Um, I have a tag already for South Dakota. That's a hundred percent guaranteed trip. I'm going on there, but then I'm, I'm bouncing around some other ideas like Nebraska, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Missouri. And I won't hunt all of those places, but I will, uh, I will be, I don't know. I will be bouncing around a lot this year. I will. I, I, <laughs> I mentioned this on another podcast that I was on. I have a lot of brownie points this year built up. I mean, things that I've done around the house, things that I've done with my family, uh, trips, gifts, <laughs> just like I'm, 
I'm I'm at an all time high. I'm at max capacity for brownie points, and I am gonna use every single one of them, man. I am I'm gonna I'm gonna use them all, and I think my my wife knows that, and so um, I think she's gonna let me fly this year. You ever, did you ever do an episode titled "How to Acquire Brownie Points for Fall"? Do like you know I'm, that is that is an excellent episode? That's an excellent idea. And I think I need to I need to do that. Yeah, you I need might to, have to I need do to get that. that. Something to launch in like the the springtime leading into summer. How to acquire brownie points over the summertime. So, yeah, and so my so I, I would want to do that probably with my wife. Oh, that's a good idea. Would, would yeah. she be up for that? Has she ever been on a podcast with you? No, she, she hasn't. She hasn't. You've probably heard her in some of the earlier episodes in the Nine Finger Chronicles in the background when she was yelling at my kids, <laughs> but that's that's as much as she's been on the podcast. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit, and I have a question I've been dying to ask you, and I think now is the best time to possibly ask it. So, you know, we started Pennsylvania Woodsman. I I think we're going on like a year and a couple months now. It's been a a great journey. I've really enjoyed it. And I didn't know really what to expect when I was going through, but one of the things I've learned doing these weekly shows and having just an assortment of guests, I never anticipated that, A, my philosophy and thought process would be challenged as much as it is, and then I would also learn so much that I want to apply when it comes to my own personal outdoor interests, specifically towards my deer hunting. So Isn't it great? It, it's fantastic. So yeah. I, I turn that over to you doing over 700 episodes, and that's not even including you know the ones you've been guests on and stuff like can you give me an insight when it comes respective to bow hunting whitetails? Like how, this is kind of a general question, but like how do you see that just hone your craft of bow hunting whitetails over the course of that time? Well, I really think it's, it's a lot, like what I really like is hearing stories about guys, you know, how, how that, how they have found success, just like the average guys. And what a lot of it has to do is a couple light switch moments that kind of happen in their career. And, and it's not necessarily like a, it, when we think light switch, we, we think instantly, but sometimes that can happen over the course of a couple of years. And the most recent episode I did was a perfect example. A guy shot his biggest, uh, white tail buck because he said, Hey man, I heard another story of another hunter uh, get off field edges, get, uh, get away from ladder stands, start moving around more, start, you know, playing this chess match start using trail camera Intel and start really observing, uh, and journaling everything around me that was happening in the woods. Like, Hey, I found a scrape here. I found a rub here. Um, I seen deer move here. And he used that to move one of his tree stands simply 50 yards. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And it led to him shooting his biggest archery buck he's ever he's ever killed, and so so it's little moments like that that really that really get me fired up because as much as we like to say things are different, they're they're kind of the same too, you know. They they always say, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but at the same time, there's you know there's more than one way to to kill a, a mature buck, and. Uh, there are so many examples of that on the, for example, the Nine Finger Chronicles or, or any podcast or any any uh, success story that you a person listens to that 
you, what you see is there's maybe some principles like deer, deer don't always do this, but then sometimes they do always do this, right? Mm -hmm. So you take those principles and you can, some guys can apply it to their, their scenario, their situation, and it could, it, it could lead to some, some success. I'm always blown away. Like I'm very science oriented when I come to things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an agronomist. I went to school for biology. I love to use science and make predictions and assumptions that this is why I'm going to do this in respect to deer hunting. And then yeah. you've got you've got a lot of people like that. And then you've got another side of it that like there's just a purely artistic mind and the way yeah. they approach how a whitetail moves through the woods and they're going to do this and why they do this. And like sometimes I'll listen to it. I'm like, well, nothing about research supports what you're saying. That's ludicrous. But at the same time, I'm like, OK, but you've also got a ton of whitetails that anybody would want to shoot in the country hanging on your wall so there's got to be merit to what you say so i'm always infatuated yeah. with that level of variability now with that and all the, t the tons of episodes you've done and you know reoccurring guests or one-time guests you've had on your show um it, and be feel if if you want to to name drop here if you don't want to that's fine but i'm really curious over the years is there a group of people or any one pe person that has really just shown a light and helped you in ma decision making for shooting mature whitetails. Man, I, I wish I could say there's been there's been someone out there who's been a mentor or a motivator or or I've I've listened to or talked with on the podcast that has really like opened my eyes. But I don't think like that, unfortunately. I, I love hearing the stories. But those people, and, and just like the listeners of this podcast, me and you, we don't hunt their property. They don't hunt our property. So how can I give advice to a guy or or learn from a person? Uh, it, it would be like a public land guy or a small acreage guy. Let's say a guy only has 40 acres to hunt. Taking advice from someone who hunts 2,500 acres or a private land manager talking to a public land grinder, right? It's just like their, their worlds are so different. The deer behavior might be the bonding right there for the, the two, you know, like sometimes deer do this, sometimes deer do that, but they do it in a different way on highly managed private than they do on high pressure public. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a ton of sense. There's so much yeah. context behind that in any one of those yeah. styles of hunting. And I think that's why there's so much heat amongst the hunting community about arguing, well, deer never do this, or they always do this, like that type of thing. And even the, yeah. the private land versus public land. I mean, you, you and like you, you kind of bust my chops a little bit because I love to talk about food plots and I love to do private land stuff. And you're like, I just always laugh at you guys. Cause you, you geek out over the dumbest crap. And it's, <laughs> it's like, how does this relate? And it's, it's all context to what you're doing and yeah. how you're doing. And at the end of the day, it's just about, you know, having fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that I, I don't know, I, I just, I love, I just keep going back to the stories, right? The, the way people do it is exciting and it's, it's all about work. And when do you put in the work, right? Do you put in the work when you're scouting? Do you put in the work when you're planning the food plots and doing the hinge cutting and things like that? Do you put in the work when you're um, actually in the season 
or do you, you know, it's all about time and where the time is put in. And that ultimately makes you better, a better deer hunter. There's no replacing that. And I mean, I struggle with that right now. I mean, we just talked in the beginning of this conversation. We're talking about kids and you're a dad, you're a husband, you, you get all of that. And I'm like, it's, I get it, but it's relatively new to me. And it's been quite a learning curve because I'm trying, I'm on this efficiency kick. I'm trying to figure out how can I be more efficient with the time I have. And it's just, it's just, it's kicking my tail if I'm not going to lie, man. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. You mentioned about you mentioned something about uh, uh, being like a geek about science and things. I am too, and I'm, I'm very kind of analytical in my approach to just a lot of things, and it drives my wife crazy. <laughs> but, but one of the things, like um, when I f- first got out of college, I was working in a factory, and they because I had a college education, they brought me into a program. Um, where we learned about lean manufacturing principles, okay? And I'm not sure if you're familiar with lean manufacturing, but long story short, it is the most efficient way to get the highest productivity okay. in a roundabout way. And one of the principles is asking five, it's called five why. And so five why is um, if there's a deficiency or a defect in a product, you try to find the root cause analysis by asking the question why five times. Like, why did this cable break? Well, um, the maintenance team didn't fix it. Why didn't the maintenance team fix it? Well, they were too busy. Well, why was the maintenance team too busy? Because they were working on this project or, or whatever. It could go a thousand different ways. So that's kind of an approach that I take to almost my life. Right. Like, well, when I'm talking about deer hunting, like, dude, man, I got busted. Why did that deer bust me? Well, he got downwind to me. Why did he get downwind to me? Well, my stand was in the right, wrong spot. Why was my ta- uh, stand in the wrong spot? Well, you know, could go a thousand ways from there. And what you try to do is you try to ask yourself these questions. Why, 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 why to find that root cause. And then you kind of go, oh, geez, man, that was stupid. Now, the next time you go into the woods, you set up a tree stand or you're in a ground blind or things like that. And it, it could really, it can really be implemented on any decision that you make in life or any bad thing that happens to you in life. And you ask yourself those questions and hopefully you find a different solution to the problem and you implement it and you find success with it. So that's, that's one thing that I kind of, I, I kind of do to uh, make myself better in the woods and, and outside of the woods as well. I really, really like that. And uh, I, I can think of so many cases where I would sit down and do that and keep asking myself why, but I feel mm-hmm. like it would just continue to come full circle and I could go insanity when, when it comes to whitetails at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we were talking about context earlier and, you know, one of the things that's kind of funny, I put myself into a little bit of a headlock on our show because I am really, really geared towards trying to make it as specific to Pennsylvania as possible. And that can really put me in a headlock when it comes to you know, just certain things and topics throughout the outdoors because it, you know, I, I want to be relatable everywhere, right? And one of the things I'm thinking about as we're talking about, you know, uh, you're a boy in the Midwest and I'm over here in the Keystone State. And while there's a lot of differences amongst hunting whitetails um, 
in those ge geographical places, there's still a lot of context that we share, especially when it comes to hunting pressured whitetails. Now, you, you hunt a lot of private land pieces by permission only, or do you hunt some public? Yeah, I hunt some public. Uh, I In Iowa, for uh, most of my most of my property is private ground simply because there's very little public ground in Iowa. Um, with that said, I still hunt a little bit of, of public that borders some of the private that I that I that I have access to, and some other pieces that are that are close to home. Like if I if I just want to get out, I'll go to I'll go to them because they're close. Mm. Other states, when I go out west, 100% public. So it just, it just depends on where I'm at really. How do you, how do you calibrate your expectations from, you know, your home turf versus your, you know, your uh, destination trips? I mean, I'm assuming most of those trips you're gone, you know, a week to 10 days or something like that. That's pretty, pretty standard. I'm not sure if it's a lot different for you or not, but tell me a little bit how you calibrate your goals and expectations throughout the season based on the turf you're hunting and the setup yeah. private land versus public. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with how much time, again, we talked about time I've been able to put into said properties. Okay. So on my Iowa farms, I have a completely different set of expectations than I do on public land in a different state. Why? Because I know how deer move through these properties. I have a different age structure on these properties in Iowa. And so therefore I have trail cameras I've scouted. I've hunted multiple years. So I kind of, I have more information that helps me make decisions on that, on that farm. Now, when I go out West, I don't know shit about those mm. properties. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. So to say, well, I'm, I'm going to hold myself to the same standards as I do in Iowa. Number one is ridiculous. And number two, it's, it's not, it's just straight up not going to happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to probably see a 150 class buck or, or whitetail when I go out to Nebraska or I go out to South Dakota, or I'm not going to run into a, even a 150 class uh, mule deer. They're out there. But the, the expectation or the, the, the reality is, is that you got to be really good and you have to have a lot of time into scouting and things like that to go find them and, uh, and make that, uh, and, you know, make it happen that way. But I don't, I only have eight days. Usually two of those are driving days mm -hmm. where I drive out and I drive home. So that leaves me with six days to scout, locate and uh, attempt a, a stock on, on these animals. And so you know, it, it just, it, the, the, it's just a reality check is all it is. And as I listen to you answer that question and I think about it, anybody listening to that, you could probably think about that. Well, yeah, duh, that makes sense. But when you're living in the moment, like I do this all the time, like I have an expectation and I'll, I'll compare it to where I'm at. Like PA is a one buck state and yep. I have a couple private land pieces that I hunt and I have some public that I hunt and I went through a phase for a while where if let's say I just went after something on public, I just, even though I knew I was hunting a little bit different caliber deer and had a little bit different style, I still had the mindset. Like I remember I passed the deer on public land it, as it walked away. I was like, that's probably one of the best deer I could have possibly shot on this piece yeah. of property. And I just left it walk. I'm like, 
Well, again, it goes back, you know, it's one one buck state calibrating your expectations. But, I, I mean, what I'm getting at is just when you live in the moment of certain things, like I just find it hard to calibrate when you're yeah. in that reality check because I put I put way too much stress on myself in the fall. To, like, I got to kill one. I got to do it. Yeah. And uh, so here's an approach that I, I've kind of picked up in the last handful of years. And that's, you know, I always try to stair step. I want I want a, I would love to shoot a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, you know, or, or get these deer that have these, these 180 class racks and, 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 and just giants. Right. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that's, that's not even happening on the farms in Iowa. Yes. There are the rare outliers where a giant will, a giant genetic freak will show up He'll get to 200 inches, but it's once every seven years on average mm. that a, a deer gets to that caliber. Even even more into the 180s, right? The same the same thing. Once a deer gets to, to – I don't think people understand – there's so much hype about 200, but I don't think you people understand that 170 inches and above is very rare. It's still a very rare deer. So – with that said, there are places in the country where where 170 is more possible than in a you know like in other parts of the country. Iowa is definitely one of those states, and I hunt a farm that's in that in a region like that. So it's even on those farms, it's still rare to like, booners just don't show up mm. all the time, and so I have to set. I've, I've, what I've really done is I've stair stepped up, right? No more three-year-olds. I'm trying to shoot a four-year-old, maybe even, maybe even higher. I, I find that out by trail camera data. And then what I try to do is I try to shoot the best deer that's on the farm. And, and sometimes that's a, a 140 class and sometimes that's a 150 class. And sometimes it's, it's higher than that, mm-hmm. but it's, I, I don't, I don't try to shoot what I don't have because you'd be waiting in a tree stand for a very long time. Been there before, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of funny as I'm listening, you talk about Iowa. I mean, for years, it was just like over here in the East, you just picture Iowa and there's, there's a 170 behind every single stinking nook and cranny and corner. And, you know, as I've gotten into indulged to like podcasts and listening to them more, listening to nine finger chronicles and a lot of other people and how it relates to, you know, they're hunting in the Midwest. It seems like a lot has changed. It seems like that pressure's really come down on your state pretty hard. And it seems like the pressure's way different. I mean, elaborate on that for me and your experience. Uh, well, you have to realize where the the this information is coming from. It's coming from people who have the ability to manage very large pieces of land, who have what seems like an endless budget for habitat management, uh, planting food plots, basically planting fields of food just for deer. Like imagine planting a fifty acre cornfield and then just not cutting it and letting it be deer food. Right. My grandpa would shit his pants if he found out that people were doing this. Right. Uh, You know, because back uh, he passed away before I started getting really into the whole the whole hunting side of things. Mm -hmm. And if I told him, hey, man, there's people out here planting crops for deer food, he'd be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Right. So so there's this uh, there the information that comes 
is like, oh, dude, dude, like imagine passing a 190 inch deer as maybe like a five year old in hopes that the next year he gets to this magic number of 200. Mm-hmm. People, people are doing that. Now, what you have to ask yourself is, is that relatable to your scenario? <laughs> uh, I live in Iowa and I'll tell you right now, I will never, I, I put that with a very small asterisk because I could hit the jackpot someday and I could, you know, I could go on a 10 year tear where I shoot Boone and Crockett's every 10 years on after I win the lottery and, and buy the, the mega farm and, and do all the habitat work. That could happen. I don't know. Very mm-hmm. small chance. So I say never with a small asterisk because, you know, never, never really means never. I will never asterisk pass a 190 inch deer. Are you kidding me? Who does that? Right. Uh-huh. So you have. Yeah. So um, the expectations of Iowa are they're just they're they're the the reality is it's coming from the content providers who have the ability to to do that to the properties or or hunt very now don't get me wrong there's guys out there who and i know a couple of them i know a guy who shot a 205 a handful of years ago on public he was sitting on a bucket in in on a piece of public during archery season and this 205 incher shows up and he smokes it Mm. and so and so that that kind of stuff still happens as well. You know, the 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 likelihood of that is very rare, but again, it happens, right? So that's that's where I that's where I've made the realization where okay, what am I hunting versus what are all these other people hunting? And and I also am the guy who and I I'll just say it this way. I don't give a f about what other people are doing on their like on their farms because they're they're not me right i if i gotta hunt public i gotta hunt public if i got if i hunt this private piece that has uh what is it Uh, there's a private piece that has four other bow hunters on it i gotta deal with that like other people don't have to deal with that so i kind of just hey this is this is my world i can only live in my world and so i gotta make decisions that help me in my world yeah, bingo there. And like you brought up another great context point. I mean, if somebody is doing that because they have the capability to do that, is there yeah. anything wrong with that? Absolutely nope. not. The fact that you've got yourself to your that point in your life to be able to do that, that's great. But you talked about being real, you know, being reality and comparing to yourself. Just to give you an idea, Dan, the way inflation has affected agriculture, you said about, let's say somebody planted a 50-acre cornfield to let stand for corn. Your average input cost per acre for managing that crop on the high end, you're probably looking at $700 to $1,000 an acre to manage that at the high end. So put that into perspective for what you're planting for deer, and you go, yeah, that's really not reality. Does that um, does that include things like diesel fuel? Yeah, typically. The, I mean, when I yeah. do, I don't see, I don't really do like the cost analysis, ROI, return on stuff with my growers, but I have those conversations with them a lot. And when I figure in the cost of pesticides, the cost of fertilizer, your time invested, the diesel fuel that's involved with that, I mean, it's not it's not unrealistic to expect somewhere, at least in our part of the world, but I can't imagine it's. A terrible amount different out there. You know, we yeah. use a lot of the same practices and stuff. But seven hundred to a thousand dollars an acre this year with the cost of fertilizer and stuff. 
for yeah. for corn. I mean, that's that's insane. So if people are doing that, which and that's with a are, bag of seed corn, right, being like three hundred bucks. Yeah, a bag of seed corn is anywhere from. I mean, now there's there's going to be bags of seed corn uh, going in the next year that are going to be four hundred dollars. Now there's technology in that that you can plant it at a lower population, and that's a conversation we don't need to go down. But anyway, yeah. you know, if one bag of corn might plant two two and a half acres. Um, yeah. So that's seed. You're not talking fertilizer. You're not talking diesel. So it's just it's just so crazy. But yeah. I, I mean. There, there's good and bad. I praise anybody who's done it because you, I, I, I said this before. I love land management, land manipulation, doing all that stuff in the off season when you have the capability, and then watching the plans that you make unfold right before your eyes, and the target buck steps out, and you can do it. like that. T- to me, that is freaking awesome. Yeah. It is. Um, but again, I think because of that content providing and like the image that's been created, it really has molested so many people across the country and what expectations and goals should be for, yeah. for themselves. Like it's like an identity thing. Like, and, and you, you say it best. You've done this long enough. Like I don't care what anybody does. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's correct. When it comes to, uh, so, like the private stuff that you're hunting out there, do you have? Do you find a lot of the properties you're sharing with other guys, and you're, you're even though it's private land, you're still kind of dealing with that public land type pressure feel. Like, what's that like for you? Yeah. So, a lot of there's a there's also a misconception, and this is all over the country. Uh, people say public versus private. Well, he shot it on private. Well, he shot it on public. Dude, there's places where I, I'm sure there's places in this country where there's some low pressure public. At the same time, I'm sure, and I used to hunt one of them, where the farmer gave permission to absolutely anybody who asked. I don't have access to that farm anymore because it's been sold since. But anybody who would ask would get permission on it. And so I've also hunted high pressure private, right? So it really is boiled down to take the label of public and and private away from it. And it's more like pressured and unpressured property. So that's, that's kind of how I I try to look at things like that. Mm. And when you think about going into this season, I'm, I'm kind of coming at this an angle. I'm just picking your brain, how your, your mind goes kind of on your home turf, you know, when you're positioning, you know, however many farms you have and kind of looking at where, that strategic stand placement and trail cameras, all stuff. Like I'm just thinking out loud, like how do you approach that property from perspective of hunting the edges versus diving in like, and, and yeah, that's a loaded question, but I mean, go for that. So in, in regards to pressure is concerned, I try to stay away from the pressure or flank the pressure. Right. So most hunters, not saying all hunters, there's not two Dan Johnsons out there who are completely mobile. They're fight, you know, they're fighting each other. They're gonna, you're, they're gonna be in different places every single time. I'm lucky enough that the other guys I share the properties with are straight up, not like they're not mobile. They they typically go to the same stands every single day, uh, or every single year, and that's what they do. Right? That's that's how they that's how they hunt. I've learned that the deer know what they're doing 
and I flank those positions. And a perfect example is this year where um, the only reason I didn't go in sooner to this area is because it would have been too close to another hunter and I would have been, I don't know, I I would have felt like I was infringing on their their hunting area at that night. I found out that guy wasn't going to be there that the the next night. So what did I do? I went right in. Went right into the area, way outside of this guy's shooting range. He probably would have never even seen the buck if he was in that stand. And I, I ended up getting, you know, getting a crack at this deer. And fortunately, it worked out for me. So with that said, when it comes to how I play that game with pressure, a lot of it is I let the other people do what they do. And then I, I let all the pieces of the puzzle get laid out. And then I will go in and try to figure out what to do. And so sometimes that's stay away from it. Sometimes that's flank it, but I'm never really on top of it. And obviously pressure is the name of the game for anybody who does this. And we already discussed that. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, I, I've got this mindset or I've, I've, I think you can take it out of context when you listen to people talk about pressure that like if somebody has a stand that they sit in consistently, consistently, and let's just take a, this is a hundred acre property that you're hunting or something like that. I think it's really quick for somebody to think, well, you know, that guy's hunting that stand repeatedly and that's completely ruined that entire property. I think that's a very common thought to have. And you talk about flanking the pressure. Do you see on the places you're hunting and you're talking about managing that based on these couple other guys, do you see deer do sometimes a lot more of a minor transition in their daylight movement patterns by you know within that property and it, it might be a a shorter version or just a different route on how they're traveling and utilizing that property versus just that mindset that well there's hunting pressure here i'm just going to just bag this and move on to the next one yeah as far as the deer behavior is concerned i think i've, I've actually seen it with my own eyes they they will get into a routine where they will they will watch They'll sit back, they'll watch the hunter from afar or catch them downwind, know when they're there, and then flank around them or go the complete opposite direction. So I try to I try to like have my access routes on point, right? They have to be on point. And you really can't go into an area and be 100% scent free or um, something the wind is always going to go one way and there's always a chance that there's the potential for you to, uh, spook deer. So, uh, when it comes to that pressure and I I've, I've watched deer and you know, this just as well as I do, they're the most patient animal I've ever seen. I've seen a deer stand in one spot without moving for one hour, Mm -hmm. one straight hour. And that was because, um, I, this this deer this buck was coming down. Fortunately, he wasn't a shooter, and so I hung my bow back up and I made a clink, just a very slight little clink on my uh, on my hook. And he stopped and he he scanned the area. And I don't mean scanned like moved his head. He didn't move his head at all. He stood and he just looked in one direction where that sound came from for one hour. Luckily, I didn't get busted, 
because I was in a comfortable position, but he, he sat there for one hour. And so these deer, they, they're just like, if you had this gut feeling, somebody was in your house, they have the gut feeling that dude, someone is in our house. Someone's, you know, in our woods and, and they know, they know typically when there's intrusion and you just have to catch them, catch them off guard. Are you targeting a lot of specific deer in your home turf? Uh, you talked about about four year olds and better, so I'm assuming most of the time you're going into a place you've got a calculated decision of when you're hunting there because you're hunting that specific deer. Yeah, most of the time, actually, it's on the fly. I don't really follow a uh, single deer. I mean, if there's a single deer that tends to stay in the same spot every year, yeah, I'm I'm definitely targeted targeting them. But the past handful of years, it just hasn't happened. Uh, next to the, some of the farms that I hunt are, and I don't mean right next to them, but down the road or down the same, uh, uh, the same waterway or, or the terrain features kind of flow in and out of each other are some really good properties. And so the deer, once a a big mature buck gets taken out of this property or taken out of a next property or taken out of a next property. However, there's a power vacuum for dominant bucks. And so they, they jockey position. And so they could move, you know, they move a property or they move into the best, you know, the best food source or the best cover or where the most does are during the, the, the rut. So, um, it's different every year these days. It's not like it was back in the early 2000s or like the mid 2000s when I was hunting and uh, like 2010 time frame where, man, I could I could pattern a deer year after year after year. It's it, for some some reason, it's not like that anymore. So that's why I go with an age class and whatever gets me hyped when it walks by my stand while I'm in the stand. I see more of that happening now than used to. I mean, it seemed like it was uh, for a long time. There was a phase that you, any any media or content you watched, people were just oh, hunt this specific deer, hunt this specific deer, and like you even did that episode with uh, Aaron Warbritton. He was talking about that. Man, I used to follow like single deer, and I just I just go hunt, and I have an ex, I have a a standard I'm looking for, and if it gets me excited, yeah. I'm hunting. And I I I kind of like that. I mean, I still I still follow specific deer um, on private pieces that I hunt and you talked about like a dominant buck vacuum like I can think of specific sections of the property that I hunt and seeing that on an annual basis with real with relation to the mature deer we've taken off of that like I can think back three years ago uh we watched there was there was a deer it was he ended up being a five-year-old like a 146 nine pointer or something it was a dandy buck but you know he just had this like dominance boss mentality and i'll never forget opening night we couldn't hunt this one location due to the wind direction but we had camera pictures of him pushing around this other really really nice shooter and so the the first year we kill this nine pointer the following year the trail camera images and the daylight patterns that the buck he that, that this nine pointer pushed out a year ago were almost identical to what this buck did the following year, this this other buck. And opening night, we killed him in the same location we couldn't hunt the year before on opening night, just doing this, the same stuff. And that was another, I think he was a four-year-old, but, sure, but it's just amazing how that 
mature buck vacuum when they just find a, se- a section that keeps them safe and secure how it'll just repeat year after year if nothing else if everything else stays constant yep yep absolutely man i uh, i really appreciate you coming on i appreciate you just having a, a general bs bow hunting conversation with us um i, I really appreciate the the insight just on not just the deer hunting side of things but the the everyday life and how that affects it so uh, the one question i have to ask you talked about young kids versus older kids does it get any more flexible the older they get with your deer hunting as you as you've experienced no dude um and it sucks (laughs) actually it sucks more if they're in sports or activities so my boy he's going to be in soccer my daughter's going to be in soccer my youngest is going to be in soccer my boy's also going to be my oldest boy is also going to be in football so i'm going to miss unfortunately and i hate saying it out loud because it makes me almost sound like a shitty parent Mm -hmm. but i'll be missing a couple a couple like one in September and one in October football games or soccer games. And so I, I, I feel like I, I, I am confident I put in enough time during the rest of the year where I can get away with doing those, like missing those things. So, uh, it, it actually gets more complicated, (laughs) unfortunately. I believe that, but it's, it's just different. Like I can think about like, yeah. okay, I'm in the baby phase right now with, with our second one. And I'm just starting to see like my two year old turn into a little person. I mean, I, I, it sounds yeah. terrible, but like, I just, I did not enjoy the, uh, the whole infant stage. I love my children to death and I don't want anybody to take that out of context wrong, but like that stage for me was, was hard. And now I see him like turning into a little person and, and, you know, talking responding like a human i'm like this is starting to get fun in a different way so i'm looking forward and one of the things that i think is going to be interesting so you know i told you she my wife coaches field hockey and i mean she's a a college coach she's an assistant but i mean it's a it's a full-time gig coaching right and she uh she's got you know six days a week wrapped up in that whether that's morning or evening at some point um so with having the kids and I'm really contemplating taking my two-year-old out in a, a blind with me and seeing how it goes. <laughs> and I got a feeling it's going to be a complete shit show. But at yep. the same time, I'm going to set my expectations low and just roll with it if I do it. <laughs> yeah, that's the night the big boy steps out. It, it, in all reality, it probably will be. <laughs> I'll go somewhere to like shoot a doe and... You know, one of the one of the targets steps out, and I, I want to try to open the window, and he's carrying on like, stop it, put a pacifier in his mouth. Yeah, something. I know. Yeah, we're trying to break that break that out of kids, man. That's something yeah. else. But maybe I'll have to have one on standby. There you go, uh, Dan. I just appreciate you coming on, BSing with us. Um, good luck, you know, throughout your your entire fall here, um, all the places you're going. Um, I can't wait to see what happens. Yep, absolutely, man. Good luck to you as well. Thanks. We'll see you.